everyone. I'm Anna Leger-Dapp, Senior Director, Clinical Guidelines and Quality Improvement, and I represent ASHP on the National Academy of Medicine Action Collaborative on Clinician Wellbeing and Resilience. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting, focusing on well-being and resilience in your practice and in your day-to-day lives. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share their best practices and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. In terms of thinking about some key definitions, though, I do feel like that this was useful in terms of defining stress and burnout. This is also a typical, typical presentation, right? This can vary between a variety of individuals. Each of us has our own type of coping strategies or response to stress. When we think about stress, this is often an acute, short-term type of interaction. This can be indicated through this overwhelming sense of, um, or just a sense of overwhelm. Uh, It can be indicated by a lot of overthinking. I'm a catastrophizer, that's what I do. I just immediately go to worst case scenario. Um, This can actually be an element of hyperactivity or reactivity. You might not be able to focus in moments of stress. Uh, You can often feel this idea of urgency or there can actually be an over-engagement in some environments. When we think about burnout, this is often when we think about an accumulated or a chronic type of stress. This is really something that's been culminating over a prolonged period of time. Um, This is usually indicated by not having a lot of energy or motivation, sluggishness, uh, feelings of helplessness, very similar to elements of depression. Um, You can have a lot of cynicism. So when you start to hear a lot of negativity from individuals, this can be an indicator of burnout. Um, And then the other piece is detachment. When people feel like they're not engaged or they're not connected to their work, this is often an indicator of burnout. And so these are the types of things that we look for is whenever you see an individual or you have a conversation with an individual, um, now everybody can have a bad day, right? We are allowed to have bad days. That does not mean that all because you snap at somebody or you say something um, that's, or you get agitated, et cetera, that does not necessarily mean that you're burned out. Uh, It can mean that you are experiencing some element of stress. It's this prolonged exposure. When you start to notice that this behavior is occurring for several days, months, et cetera, that's when there's something to be a little bit more nervous about and to have a deeper conversation with an individual. Um, And so again, this is more so to help you understand that stress is, when we talk about stress, that's typically an acute short-term type of element versus when we think about burnout that's long-term accumulated and chronic. When I talk about well-being, there's a variety of different models around well-being. Um, and so this is one that identifies the state of having some specific balance as it relates to our physical health, mental, financial, occupational, social, environmental, and cultural. When we talk about resilience, there's uh, the seven C's model is another example that really defines resilience as this idea around flexibility. You'll also hear elements of mental toughness. Um, Grit is a common example. I do struggle with the grit definition. So if you've read Angela Duckworth's um, research on grit, there's a lot of challenges to that around perseverance and passion. Um, And so really when we talk about grit, we really mean how well do you persevere within certain challenges. Um, The key here is that resilience also means that you can quit things. It is okay to quit. And that's part of the challenge that I have with grit is grit says you can't quit anything. But there are moments where if you have a very toxic environment that you're within, quitting is totally okay. And quitting is totally valid and acceptable. 
and a good decision. Um, and so with that, understanding that there's a variety of elements when it comes to resilience. And so this seven C's model really says that there's those pieces where we have to feel um, competent. We have to feel like we know what we're talking about. We have to feel confident in ourselves. We have to have connection. We have to have some element of self-worth. Um, we need to feel like we can contribute. We have to have successful coping strategies. And then we also have to feel like we're in control within these spaces. And so these are all different things that we try to think about. This is also very common when it comes to motivation, especially within a work environment. These are all the same things that we could look for from a motivational perspective. We want to feel like we are autonomous. We want to feel like we have control. We want to feel like we're confident. We want to feel comfortable. Um, and so these are all different things that we can think about. When we talk about well-being and resilience, I just wanted to provide a brief definition of that. Now, this is also where I'm going to give myself really good credit. Um, I think it's, <laughs> sorry, I think it's really useful um, to talk, I use analogies a lot, and I think this is really helpful, especially as it relates to psychological concerns, because we often have a very difficult time defining those or talking about those, and so what I do is I make a lot of comparisons to physical elements. I am going to provide a content warning. This will provide some elements that um, may affect you. And so with that, if you feel that you need to remove yourself from the space, it is completely OK. The first thing that I want to think about is, so imagine we have a patient. Whenever we, I'm going to oversimplify here, but whenever we work with a patient, we can, we can somewhat triage them in terms of how we're managing their health or their support. So for example, we can think of a patient who's stable, who's healthy, Right? We're working on prevention, we're working on maintenance, vaccines, et cetera. Those are all going to be things kind of in this green area. However, we can shift to a space where a patient might be stable, but they still have needs. So they might have chronic disease states, they might need cholesterol medication, they might need hypertension medication, et cetera. Um, and our goal in that space is really identifying what it is, treating it to help bring them back to this element of homeostasis or stability um, and, and health. And then there's other elements where a patient can be unstable and critical. So I worked predominantly within the emergency medicine department. And so this is an area that I think of, of like, I'm not worried about your jock itch when you have a gunshot wound, you know? So there are certain elements where we try to identify what is the most emergent need within that space and addressing that appropriately. So that way we can start focusing on the other elements at a later time. But we have to address what's immediately um, impactful. And so let's talk about this from a physical threat perspective. We can think of this as the same way. Again, content warning. We can think about a red situation being an active shooter. There's an active element that we have to address immediately. We're worried about people's safety. We need to address it. It is emergent, and that's most critical. We can then think about if something were to occur or before it occurs, we might have specific policies that we enact. We might have procedures, et cetera. We might use drills, evacuation plans. These can all be elements that help us prepare for these types of environments. So this is common, right? How many of you have gone through an active shooter training? Great. Well, not great, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so I also, and I'll also disclose, I use humor a lot, and so I think that's also part of like, I feel like in emergency medicine, we use humor a lot because we deal with very, negative things, and so that's our main coping strategy. So I do apologize if anything I say is offensive. Uh, please feel free to tell me, and I, I will work on that. Um, so this is, this is an example of a physical threat. So let's think about this from a psychological threat. A team member dies by suicide. How many of you have had any specific training on how to respond to somebody dying by suicide within your team spaces? Do you see how many different hands there are compared to the active shooter training? 
And I think that's one of the struggles that we have within this space is we treat psychological threats as not as important as physical threats. And in my opinion, they both have a lot of weight associated with them. And psychological threats, I feel like, can also have a lot of consequences um, long term, similar to a physical threat. And so I think that this is one thing that's really important is thinking about psychological threats in comparison to, to, to physical threats. We should have training. We should do uh, active uh, drills, et cetera. We can talk about after an event occurs, we can have specific support that's provided. We can also do things to help prevent it, though. We can have conversations. We can have check-ins. There are things that we can do to ensure um, that we try to avoid those types of situations because we know that there's a lot of uh, consequences associated with that. And so really the goal here is thinking about how we can create these connections, how we can address psychological threats similar to how we address physical threats um, because there's, there's potential and there's power here. And that's exactly what this conversation is about as it relates to well-being and resiliency. It's focusing a lot within the psychological threat space um, because I do feel like the reason why we're having these conversations is ultimately when we have these conversations is because we're trying to prevent suicide. In my opinion, this is, this is completely my opinion. I don't, I don't necessarily think like, yes, people leaving the organization, yes, that's bad, that costs money, et cetera. But this is our biggest concern. When we talk about we're launching a new school at High Point University within the dental medicine space, um, and our, our chief people officer, this is her biggest concern right now, is we are completely terrified about having a student die by suicide. Um, we've had this happen at UNC. We've had this happen in workspaces. Um, and there's a lot that we can do to prevent that. And so that's really the work that we're trying to engage with is that this is what I'm trying to prevent. And that's part of the impact and the purpose for this conversation. Sorry, I got my little soapbox right there. Okay, so what's our plan? Again, gosh, this is so funny. So we're gonna assess, build, and change. A, B, C. Ah. So again, if you work in the emergency medicine department, right, anytime somebody comes in, what's the first thing we do? Airway, breathing, circulation. Um, and so this is assess, build, and change. I thought it was really clever. Okay, so how do we assess burnout and well-being? So this is the key piece. We need to know what it is that we're addressing. If people don't feel burned out, or if they feel like they have really good management of their well-being, then is there a challenge? Not necessarily. What we're trying to do then in that case is to maintain it. Versus if there are other spaces where people do feel burned out, then that's what we know is the target for us to address. And so I think that's one of the important things here is that there has to be explicit time that's built into this, which is hard. That's really hard to get people to, to get behind when there's a lot of patient care needs, um, for example. And so what are different ways that we can build into these opportunities for um, building, but also there's an element of assessment that's engaged with that. When By having the conversation, we are also assess, assessing it. Um, and so that's really valuable. So what I'm gonna do is just talk about some quick assessments. So um, if, you've, if you've seen this, uh, this can be a, a very useful technique of what's your battery level? So let's talk about how do we build the environment. So I'm going to take it the preventative first, then we're going to talk about change. So imagine your team or institution is given an award, and this is genuine, this is not me being funny, um, for fostering well-being and resilience. You're like, oh my gosh, your team is so fantastic, congrats. And you tell everyone that you love your work or where you work because, because why? So what is it that if somebody said, or if you were to actually tell somebody, I love my job, what would be the reason for that? So pause and reflect. If you already don't, if you already do love your job, and this is easy. And so what is it that this team is doing that earns them that award? 
So what is a high-functioning team that's supporting well-being and resiliency? What does that look like to you? So let's have a conversation about that. So pair up and discuss what it would mean for you to say, I love my job, and this is what my team is doing to support well-being and resiliency. Um, just to get an idea of what the end product is that we're trying to accomplish. Sound good? Okay. Okay. Yeah, that works magic. What I'm going to do is I'm going to shift into some ideas about what are the things that we can do at different levels. So um, the question that was brought up, I think that this is, this is an important piece because there is only so much that we can control within certain spaces. And so what I'm offering here is the, the main things that we can change are the things that we do. What we do on a team, that's a little bit more within our control versus at a system level, that's a little bit harder to control. And so I'm going to provide different suggestions at each of these areas and then also we'll talk about this a little bit more in the change space. Or space. So when we talk about the things that what we can do, um, when it comes to well-being and resiliency, uh, there's a really great book called Burnout that talks about the stress cycle. Um, and really this is kind of an evolutionary type of element where we experience stress chronically, all day, every day, which was not necessarily how we were designed, right? We were designed to respond to a bear attack. And once we ran away from the bear, we survived and our body was like, fantastic, you lived another day. Um, when we have constant stress of emails and a variety of other elements, we, we don't necessarily get the opportunity to complete that stress cycle. We don't feel safe or that we've accomplished something. And so anytime that we can, we can close that cycle, which that can be through exercise, it can be through crying, it can be through laughter, it can be through connection, um, ideally positive coping strategies uh, versus alcohol, et cetera. These are the types of things that we want to think about is what are the different ways that we can complete that stress cycle and usually at the end of the day. So what are ways that we can have that closure um, through this process? The other piece is there's a really great book that I'm also going to recommend later, which is called Toxic Positivity. Absolutely love it. It's written by a uh, therapist who talks about there is this, there is an understanding that there can be too much positivity. It is okay to complain at work. It is okay for things to go wrong and to be upset by that. You don't always have to have gratitude for everything that you do. The, the other saying is, you know, everything happens for a reason, which has a lot of uh, struggle and challenge associated with it, because it assumes that um, you, we should be grateful and that there's some, some silver lining to everything that happens. People die. That doesn't mean that happened for a reason. Um, and so I think it's okay that we can be more accepting of the fact that bad things happen, and it's okay to have grief, and it's okay to have gratitude, and for those to coexist within these spaces. And so what, monitoring for elements of toxic positivity, perfectionism, like I said, that book is fantastic. It's humorous. It really dives deep into this whole space, and especially I feel like we've done this within health professions, environments where we say, just be happy. Here's the pizza. Eat the pizza. Have the cookie. Like, you will be happy. Um, and that doesn't work. <laughs> Self-compassion, we need to uh, be accepting of ourselves. We need to give ourselves time. For each person, this is gonna look a little bit different. We need to prioritize connections, which I'm an introvert. I don't like to connect with people. Um, but I understand there's a lot of value within that. We are built to have connections. We are social creatures as a result of that. And so anytime we can foster those relationships with what's healthy, again, this is ensuring that this is a healthy relationship with other people. If you are trying to sustain a relationship that's toxic or that's dangerous, that is not something that needs to be sustained, and that is okay. The other piece is asking for help. We struggle. I struggle. 
there's not a moment, I do not like asking for help. It makes me feel like I've failed, it makes me feel like that I'm not good enough, um, and it's, it's a problem. Um, and I think especially within spaces where we have mental health challenges, when somebody expresses a need for help, pause and thank them for that, because that's a huge undertaking for somebody to say, I'm struggling right now, and that's all they need is that space. Just that moment can be completely enough. You don't have to have an answer to everything. It's completely okay. As part of teams, we wanna have these conversations. So I love this idea of getting together once, once a month. Um, there's research that shows in nursing programs because there's been a lot of turnover, especially after the pandemic, frequent check-ins with managers, and we're talking like 20 minutes once a week is like the single most important predictor of whether or not somebody is retained. Our, our, my manager at uh, the school currently has started to do that. It, is, it has made a huge impact with the type of connections. These can be very short, these can be five minutes, these can be 10 minutes, 15, an hour, whatever it is. Um, but it's really an opportunity just to connect, to hear what they're struggling with on an individual basis, and it has huge ramifications. It's worth the time and the effort. Um, and so those can be things that, that you can help facilitate. Opportunities for team building. I'm not a ropes course person. I don't know why. That's like the standard go-to of like, let's do a rope course. I'm like, um, let's go to a wine bar. <laughs> like, I can build a lot of teams in that space. Um, but anytime we can have these opportunities for connection or, and again, different things, escape rooms. We've done, if you really want to challenge a team, an escape room will definitely get there um, and see how people work under stress. So again, trying to find different ways that you can engage with people and, and facilitate their specific desires and needs. Uh, and then also being mindful of people have different physical limitations, fears, et cetera, and so how you can build that. Um, establishing work-related boundaries. Um, I, what I've seen now a lot is in emails. People will say, my schedule allows me to send emails in the evening. That does not mean that you need to send an email in the evening. Um, and so there's a really intense commitment now about this space of understanding that this is how I operate within work. That does not mean that I expect you to operate in the same space. Um, and so, but also honoring that, I did have a boss who said, oh, I'm gonna email you on the weekends, but I don't expect a response. They expected a response. Um, and so I think this is one piece is be genuine with that. People have started to leave their work computers at work. There's a, a lot of value associated with that as well. So what are the different ways that you can create specific boundaries? This is the hardest part, requesting for support, right? There has to be a top-down type of commitment to this type of work, and so you have to create the argument of why this is important, which takes time, it takes effort, it takes conversations, and so that's an investment. Um, asking for that support where needed, the other piece is recognizing contributions and rewarding desired behaviors. This is so, so important. When we have a moment in a group conversation and somebody expresses a feeling or an emotion that's really difficult to express, we pause and we say, like, thank you for sharing that. I know that this was not comfortable. How do we move forward now? Whenever we have conflict, same thing. We say, this is great. This is what we want. We want people to share their opinions. We want tension. There is value in tension as long as it's resolved, as long as it's transformed. Um, and so with that, we reward that, we acknowledge that. And then we also acknowledge where the behaviors do not match what our expectations are, and we have a system of accountability for that. And so we make sure that we reiterate that and have the appropriate follow-up. For institutions, protected time. 
which I know I'm preaching to the choir at this point, um, but protected time is really the best way to get to this space. Google has the 20% rule, so they dedicate 20% of every employee's time to follow passion projects. This has led to major advancements within Google just because it allows space for people to express their creativity. So what are ways that you can build in that time? Um, while also understanding that patient care does come first and that's the priority, we also need additional support and help so that way we can have that balance. It may require hiring more people as a result to be able to give that balance to other people. Having dedicated personnel, resources, space for well-being are gonna be important. Space is a big one. Whether or not you have a meditation space, whether or not you also have like physical health needs, um, breastfeeding rooms, facilities to be able to manage chronic conditions. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of things that we can do. There's no reason why a person should have to pump in a bathroom. I don't know, that's just my, that's my belief. Uh, <laughs> so, thank you. But I think, so that, and that's the thing, and I've had like, we're, we're building a new school and I've had the conversations where we, we're fighting to have a breastfeeding room. We will be the first building on campus at High Point to have a breastfeeding, hopefully, if they actually approve it. And it's currently, a, it's a closet. It's a janitorial closet that we're trying to convert because that was what we were granted. Anyway, soapbox. So uh, the other piece is holding leaders accountable. I think this is the area that we also struggle with. I had a very toxic boss previously. I voiced my concerns to the ombudsperson. I have voiced my concerns to executive leadership. And they said, there's only so much that we can do. We can't control how people lead. We, we, don't, we don't punish for that. Um, and so as a result of that, I think we need to shift that mentality. And we need to understand that toxicity has a lot of challenges and concerns um, and to address that. We need to address policies, procedures, and then, like I said, developing plans. People should have a plan of if somebody dies by suicide or just dies in general, how do you respond to that? Is there an email? Is there mental health support? What are the responses? We had this with the pandemic. We know now how to respond. Well, I feel like we might know how to respond to a pandemic. So how do we respond to any other psychological threat? How do we, re how do we respond to a sexual assault allegation? How do we respond to bullying, harassment, toxic claims, et cetera? We need a plan so that we say this is our process for following through with that, and that way it's consistent, and that we know that we're prepared for it when it does occur, because it will, it will occur. In terms of building lessons, it's okay to complain. It is okay to quit. It's okay to rest, it's okay to set boundaries, and it's okay to ask for help. The complaints, I think what's important here is it's, it's okay for us to share our frustrations. That's, complaints are the only way that things change. So there's a lot of negativity associated with complaints. However, we forget that, you know, like the American Revolution was really just a big complaint. Um, and so <laughs> there are things that, there is value in the way that we do things that results from complaining. That's how change happens. Black Lives Matter, that was a result, I mean, it's a complaint. It's saying things aren't going well, and this is what we need to do to change that. Um, it's not okay to say that self-care is selfish. I, this is where I will, I get agitated, um, and I'll share a few words. <laughs> when people say that, you know, we have other priorities, et cetera, I, I agree, but we also cannot take care of other people when we can't take care of ourselves. Um, it's not okay to suppress emotions, we need to have a healthy outlet for those emotions, um, but it's not, we know that there's a lot of negativity whenever we suppress positive or happiness as well as um, sadness. Uh, we wanna try to avoid perpetuating stigmas, especially as it relates to mental health and well-being. Sharing our stories, I shared my struggles. Um, one of the things I did not discuss is um, I have contemplated suicide, I have written letters, I've had a plan, 
And so with that, I think what we have to do is we have to bring that forward and understand that we have, it's common for us to have those experiences. And so, sorry, we need, and also don't apologize for your emotions. Um, and so, so I think that's, that's part of this is we need to really move past that. Um, mental health well-being is here and we need to accept it and we need to move forward. We need to try to limit how much we judge ourselves. Um, and then, like I said, only pizza parties. How many of you had a pizza party during the pandemic? Yep. <laughs>so what i'm going to provide for you are some reflections and thoughts about ways that you can address situations depending on the, the current status again these are options these are not necessarily the solutions to everything when i think of a situation where it's dire where this is critical it's red there's some specific uh, event or experience that's that's occurring um, whenever there's anything i have it here of acknowledging and labeling emotions but i think it's acknowledging and labeling really the situation as a whole so when you have this data that says there's a concern, that needs to be shared with people. That data should, when you collect that information, that should not just go into a void. It should not just be shared amongst the executive leadership team. That needs to be shared with, with the group to say, here's where we are as a group. And you say, what do we do with this? Like literally ask people. I think that's, and, and this is the important piece, is ask and also act on what it is that people say. There's like these really great tweets that if you've seen of like, okay, we have a well-being issue. Like, what do you all want? And people say, you know, better pay, more time, dedicated to well-being, et cetera. And they say, no, 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 not like that. Like, here's, here's, here's some yoga. <laughs> like, do that instead. Um, we do need to listen to people and see what it is that they need and work towards a solution that works for both spaces. Um, I'd not say that we already have a solution and that we're just, asking because we want you to feel like you're engaged in the conversation, um, but really actually engage people. So that's important is collecting all those perspectives where possible, doing that in a way that's productive. This may require individual conversations with people to say where the big struggles are, what are the opportunities for improvement. If you are a leader, the squeaky wheel gets, gets the grease. This has to be something that is constantly brought up. And unfortunately, it will label you as the person who cares about like the fuzzy stuff and the squishy stuff. I'm a person like, I love the squishy stuff. It's fantastic. Um, because in my opinion, that's actually what changes organizational culture. That's what actually shifts things forward. What we've learned is the productivity and the, the focus on work, work, work doesn't really have much of a benefit versus when we create connections and build um, relationships with individuals. That has the most important factor or most important impact. The other piece, um, I do find it valuable that I find external support or facilitators really help as part of moving this style forward, especially as it relates to conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, and access as well. Often when you have somebody who's outside the environment, it allows them a space to, to come in, to share their thoughts and feelings, um, and then also to provide a unique perspective that's not necessarily biased by what's going on within the organization. Um, the other piece is, which this is awful, but it also helps to have like a common enemy sometimes. So if you've ever had, like we had Deloitte come in. <laughs> so if anybody's from Deloitte, I apologize. Um, but you know, they, they were here to help with the organization and a lot of people didn't like the things that they were doing. And so it actually created a lot of connection amongst the team to say, this is the person who's the real enemy um, rather than our own organization. Um, and so I think that those are all valuable things is that when we can build in external support, that can be very useful. And then again, closing that loop. If you ask for feedback, tell people what the feedback was and what you're doing about it, even if you're not doing anything. 
So there's a common technique that's used in academic spaces that say, you said this, we did this. They create a table and they say, here's your feedback, here's what we're doing about it. Here's your feedback, here's what we're doing about it. And in some cases it might say, unfortunately we don't have the resources for that, instead we're gonna do this. But it, help, it helps people understand that their feedback is actually heard and that there's something done about it. And so that can be a very simple technique of literally just saying, here's what you said and here's what we're doing. If you're in kind of this yellow environment, this is more so where you're providing that support that's as necessary. This is where you can really start to ident identify root causes. Are there certain things within your system that will potentially become an, an issue? This is things that you wanna watch out for. Can you start facilitating different discussions with personnel? Um, this also involves into the um, frequent check-ins and whatnot. Inviting questions, ideas, again, this has to be genuine. I cannot stress this enough. I've worked in spaces where we'll have a town hall, we'll ask all these questions, and then you go into the executive leadership team and people are like, yeah, that was great, but it was really just so people feel like we're engaging them. Um, and so I think the main thing here is that this has to be genuine engagement, genuine. If you're, if you're not actually engaging them purposefully, then don't do it. Don't waste people's time, don't waste people's money. Um, and then the other piece is revisit these expectations and accountability. So if you have a system in place that says these are the things that we hold each other accountable to, revisit that periodically. See whether or not it needs to be modified. In a green space, so if you're in more of the prevention area, I think what's really valuable is being intentional with new team members. Both the hiring process and the onboarding. We are so quick to hire and slow to fire. It's gotta be flipped. You need to be slow to hire, quick to fire. If somebody is not creating a space that's welcoming or is bringing in some element of toxicity, that needs to be addressed immediately and it shouldn't be tolerated. Um, and as a result of that, we also need to conduct a lot more assessments in terms of our hiring practices. We need to give people actual tasks. We need to put them as part of our team. We need to do all these things. When we think about residents, we invite them for a whole day. We do all these different types of exercises. We might not do that with any of the other personnel that we have within our spaces. Um, and so I think it's important that we start to think about hiring and putting a lot of effort and resources within that space because it does, it makes a huge difference. And then also with the onboarding, say these are our expectations. What, what resonates with you? What do you feel like needs to be modified? Listen to their opinion as they come in because it demonstrates that you care. Prepare for internal and external events, like I said. There's no reason why there shouldn't be a plan in place for any sort of psychological threat, similar to how we have response processes for physical threats. Um, this is an area of research that I'm actually heavily interested in, so if anybody wants to do that, let me know. Um, exploring new opportunities and programs. What are different ways that you can try new things? See what works, see what doesn't work. Uh, part of this is trial and error. Conducting routine check-ins, like we said, what are the opportunities that you can build connections with people, whether it be as a team level or as an individual level. And then the goal here is really around sustainability. This is not a set it and forget it type of situation. This is something that constantly takes work. And so it takes a lot of effort. Um, and as a result of that, it also requires a lot of rest to make sure that as we've done these things, we acknowledge and we reward the type of work that's been been done, our accomplishments, we need to express gratitude in those spaces, and we also need to identify what are the opportunities for improvement. So in terms of the change lessons, the goal here is modeling behavior. If you are in a leadership role, modeling is so critical. Again, we are social creatures. We have mirror neurons. I sound really smart, don't I? Um, <laughs> literally, we learn from observing other people. When we are surrounded by people who exhibit toxic behaviors, 
it's very easy for to take, the, take those on. When we surround ourselves with people who are very happy, we take on the, that type of mentality. There's a lot of work around mindset, there's a lot of work around resilience that shows that who we surround ourselves with has a lot of positive impact uh, and negative impact as well. Um, and so we wanna be conscious and aware of what are the ways that we can model that for other people. Engaging everyone is important. It's also okay to not use every idea. And I think that's the hesitation people have of like these town halls and getting people's opinions. They're like, well, what if somebody suggests something that we can't enact? That's okay. Like that's part of this conversation is saying, well, how do we get to a solution that's a yes and rather than a no but? Um, and so really we can take ideas and we can try to transform them into something that's useful and every step is a step in the right direction. So I think that's the other piece is that it's okay to have these incremental types of shifts. You're not gonna have this huge shift in one day. Um, transparency is the other piece. That's one of the best ways for you to build trust, especially from an executive space. And then consider what it is that you're contributing. We often like to be very self-serving we think that, that there's nothing wrong with us. You know? When you're on your drive to work and you cut somebody off because you're a little bit late, you're like, oh, sorry. But when somebody cuts you off, there's expletives, there's fingers, there's you know, all sorts of different things. Um, and so again, we, want, we need to think about what it is that we're experiencing and how are we contributing to that space. We don't want to dismiss people. We want to acknowledge them. We don't want to ignore or exclude people. We want to bring in those spaces as much as possible. Again, don't pretend to listen. It has to be genuine. If you're not going to be genuine, then don't do it. It's not worth it. Please don't. Don't be dishonest. And then don't blame. This is the other piece that's really, like, we can assume accountability for things, especially even things that are beyond our control. It's okay for us to say, this is what's happening. I'm sorry. And this is the way that we're working through it. Um, but putting that blame onto other people to say, that's not my job. That's not what I do. That's not productive. Thanks so much for listening today. If you haven't had the chance, I encourage you to visit wellbeing.ashp.org where you can learn more about our partnership with the National Academy of Medicine, the ASHP Wellbeing Ambassador Program, and find resources to promote well-being and strategies to manage occupational burnout. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting.